Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John's Gospel. John, in the 15th chapter, will be taking up the Word in verse 18. Let's stand together for the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Thus far, the word of God, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us out of the world to be your people. We thank you that you have called us together even this morning before you, that we should lift up and magnify the name of our God, that we should sing praises to the one who alone is worthy. But that we should be in, our pre- in the presence of the God who condescends to speak to sinful men. We do marvel, O oh God, that you would stoop to behold that which is upon the earth. But indeed, it is your delight to meet with your people. And we rejoice, O oh God, that you come to us with a pure word, even living Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that as the word is proclaimed, that you would work in our hearts that you grant us understanding that we'd be strengthened to live in accordance with that which you have revealed all to the praise and glory of your son. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're in the midst of this final lesson that Jesus gave to his disciples, this upper room discourse as it is more often called. And it's filled with some of the most comforting an instructive and encouraging material in the whole of the New Testament. We heard in the previous chapter that Jesus was going away to prepare a place for his people. And then he went on to say that where he was going, he would come from there to gather them to be with him, that where he was, they would be also. Those are marvelously comforting words. Jesus also added that he would ask the Father, and the Father would send another comforter, the spirit of truth who would remain with his people, his disciples, forever. These are marvelous truths. We, we've moved through these. It's good to reflect back on what we've covered. As Jesus moved into what we now have as the 15th chapter, John, he went on then to instruct the church that we should be a people who abide in him. And he uses this image of branches abiding in a vine, that they should be fruitful the exhortations that he gave, exhortation to abide in me, is then coupled then with tremendous promises that if we abide in Christ, we will bear much fruit. You know, unable of ourselves, no capability in ourselves, but in Christ as we abide in him, we'll bear much fruit. And then you will remember the emphasis, emphasis was for the Father's glory, our fruitfulness, is for the Father's glory. Even as all of Christ's life was for the Father's glory, so our lives in Christ are for the Father's glory. Now throughout this vital lesson, Jesus has emphasized the necessity of his true disciples loving one another. We have encountered that again and again, Jesus saying, if you, are, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then he would say, 
by this you'll be known that you are my disciples, because you love one another. It is in this backdrop, or with this backdrop, or in this context that Jesus adds the important instruction that we have in the verses that we'll be considering this week and over the next several weeks, for about the next month. Belonging to Jesus, following him, being united to him, necessarily means that the world will reject us. Being a disciple of Christ comes with a cost. The world will hate and persecute those who follow Christ. One of my favorite Puritan authors is Jeremiah Burroughs, and he captures it well when he writes. He's a Puritan. This language is not all that familiar to us, but I'm going to read it with emphasis and not too quickly because it's well worth hearing what he says. But he says, The world will have all to be like themselves. And for any kind of people to make a profession as if they were called out of the world and live after another kind and fashion and have other sorts of hopes, comforts, ends, and rules by which they live, oh, the world cannot endure this. There's nothing more provoking to the world than separation from the world. And therefore, it is no marvel that the people of God are hated in the world and looked upon as the ringleaders of sedition. I didn't know Puritans knew that word. But is that not true? The world wants conformity. The world wants us to behave like them, think like them, love what they love. And so it is that when we consider the cost of being a Christ follower, the, a disciple of the King of Glory... This message of persecution is often left out of many evangelicals' proclamation of the gospel. It's something that's just left off. It's not dealt with. It's put away. In, in some part, it's, it's easily done because in so much of the Western world, persecution really has not been a reality for the church. But even as that's been the case for a couple of centuries, there are parts of the world where the church has suffered persecution all the time. When I was a, a younger, well, even a, a child and a, you know, coming into adulthood, I lived in different places, as I imagine many of you did, where it was really the socially acceptable thing to be a Christian, particularly in the South, in, in a community. You know, the upstanding citizens in town, they were members of this First Presbyterian or that First Baptist. They, uh, they, they professed their faith, and, and you know, they wore their Sunday school pins all the time. All these things were very much expected, socially acceptable we're not in those days anymore. Those days have rapidly evaporated. And what our brothers and sisters have long known and experienced in other lands is not unthinkable in our nation, in our day. It's sober news, is it not? And yet, even as Jesus deals with this theme, there's comfort in it. Think about it. Is this a bad thing? How we answer the question of whether persecution is a, a bad thing depends on our priorities. Years ago, early in my ministry, uh, as a congregation, we were watching an interview with Pastor Samuel Lam, a minister in China who had just been released from 20 years of imprisonment. Think about that. The last 20 years of his life, he's been in a communist prison. And I was struck by... I was just immediately struck with how joyful he was. 
His countenance was filled with joy. He spoke with joy and boldness and confidence. He was exalting in the Lord Jesus Christ and just overflowing with love for Christ. <clears throat> All because he had preached the word of God, he was in prison. It was remarkable how calm he was. There was no uh, wringing of hands and lamenting what he had endured. There was no fearfulness that he might be in prison. As a matter of fact, he expected that he would soon be in prison again because he was not going to change his message. He was going to continue to be faithful. But in the context, the interviewer asked him the question, you know, the consequences of persecution. And he says, in China, we have persecution. I can't mimic his accent. I won't try to. But he says, in China, we have persecution and we have growth. And he wasn't talking just numerical growth. He was talking about spiritual growth. But persecution, and with it comes growth. He says in the West, you have ease, and that leads to delusion. What a contrast. In China, persecution, and that results in growth. Here we have ease. And the church is weak. Is it not? The church is weak. We're... Um, wavering, unfixed, unresolute, often divided. And so it is, brothers and sisters, we need to grow. We need to grow up in Christ. We need maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus promised that if we abide in Him, and indeed that promise from the opening of this chapter, if we abide in Him, we will bear fruit in all circumstances. Sometimes adversity makes us more fruitful. I was visiting my brother a couple years ago now, and he said, as you leave town, notice the soybean fields. He lives in Ohio, and, and uh, I noticed that we passed some fields, and the soybeans were up maybe a foot or so, and then others, they were approaching two feet tall, and they were vibrant and dark green and growing, planted at the same time. He said, what had happened is accidentally a farmer had grown, drawn, um, driven into one of his fields where young soybeans had been started and were growing, and they had been knocked down. Their stems had been broken off. And he came back later, and he noticed that those plants that had been damaged were much more vigorous than the other ones in the field. And so now it's a regular practice, at least with some farmers, they have some implement that they drive over the field when the soybean plants get so high, and they break them down. They purposely stress them, and then they come back with a vigor and grow in an amazing way with much more significant yields. My friends, that's a beautiful agricultural picture of a spiritual reality. We, if we are in Christ, are strengthened by adversity because we learn to lean on the Lord and not ourselves. And indeed, that we would bear fruit to the glory of the Father. So I think about a theme for this particular passage and kind of the theme that runs through these next several passages we'll consider. The theme would be this, to come to Jesus, or we could put it this way, to be united to Christ by faith will mean coming out of the world. And the result is that the world will hate you. Yes, just that direct. To come out of the world, to come to Christ, means that the world will hate you. Let us remember Jesus, uh, James' first point of instruction in his letter. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
James sounds like he saw the, the picture of the stressed soybean fields and the results. Count it joy that when you are tested. I'm going to use two main headings this morning. The world hates Jesus' true disciples. The world hates Jesus' true disciples. And then we'll consider why the world hates Jesus' true disciples. So we begin with the world hates Jesus' true disciples. Jesus is our loving and kind master. And so he forewarns us that we should not be surprised when persecution breaks out against us. John sounds this same word in his first epistle, First John. He gets right to the point in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Should not surprise us. Now, there's so much of John's epistle right now. We're preaching through John. We're well into John. Read John's first epistle this afternoon as a family and notice how the themes are so consistent with the gospel according to John. And so John's right to the point. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Very much what Jesus is announcing in our passage this morning. Jesus explains and comforts then, uh, he ex- explains and comforts us with the truth. And these are the plurals, as y'all know, that it hated me before it hated y'all. We're not alone in it. Jesus has already explained that the world hated him. Back, all the way back in chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says, The world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. We'll touch on that more in a minute. That That's part of telling the gospel. We have to hear the bad news before we can appreciate the good news. Now, Jesus uses the word, uh, the word world here. And as it is recorded in John's Gospel, the term world refers to the immoral order that is in active rebellion against God and his Christ. So that's the way. Now, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, the cosmos, his creation, that's the exception. But when it is used in the descriptive sense of those, the things that are in opposition to God, it's this immoral order that is an active rebellion against God and his Christ. It's the world's systems that oppose God. It's all that is controlled by unbelieving mankind who practice evil, have evil intent. They invent evil and they approve of those who do. David speaks of this in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth, are they set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away from us. So this is this active rebellion against God and against his Christ, against all that God is for. At the time that Jesus was speaking to the disciples in the upper room, the world that is particularly in view is the Jewish religious leaders. We've seen this active, coordinated, cooperative, concerted effort to oppose Christ. They're against him. And this is very much the picture of the world that is in opposition. And it will be the experience of the disciples early in their ministry after Christ ascends. They too will be dealing with this opposition from the same quarter. That will be the force of the world against them. But as the church grows and multiplies, as we read in Luke's account in Acts, you will see that the the world that hates and persecutes, it is more than the Roman Empire, as Luke records, moving through his account. In a matter of hours, from where we're here in 
in John's Gospel, the chief priests will strong-arm and shame, manipulate the governor, Pilate, to grant them their demand to crucify Jesus. We could see the hatred of Christ in Pilate when he's willing to do so, even as he recognizes he's an innocent man. An innocent man, but his hatred for God and his Christ and all that is good and righteous, he's willing to put to death the Lord of glory. Of course, we understand that God's will is being accomplished. His uh, prophetic announcements are being fulfilled, that Christ should suffer for his people at the hands even of the Gentiles. We see the world in concert against the Lord and his people. Now, a common characteristic of the world is that it hates Jesus. In verse 18, it says, Jesus says, it, the world, has hated me. This is not something that's begun. It's been ongoing. We could argue it goes all the way back to the garden. We see the contest between Cain and his brother Abel. Abel, in a a very real sense, a a picture of Christ, a a man of faith, looking to God by faith, um, standing for truth and righteousness, his brother in opposition to these things, willful, wanting to do his own thing. And he persecutes his brother because of the righteous testimony of Abel, and he even puts his brother to death. This hatred is an ongoing. We saw it as we went through the book of Genesis, the contest between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is a long-standing situation. Now, important to identify or describe terms. Consider the word hate. Jesus uses the word hate in this passage in the original language seven times. There's one more in the English because it's implied, and so it's supplied. You typically see it as italicized uh, just for clarity in reading it. But seven times he uses this word. It's a strong word. The word here, hate, means to detest. Find something so objectionable, objectionable and despicable that it's detested. To abhor it, to want to put it away from you. Uh, you want to destroy it. That's the sense of hate. And indeed, if it's in your power to do so, those that hate will destroy that which they hate. Now, In a more positive sense, this same word, we're told God hates sin. Positive in the sense that it's right. It's a a picture of the righteousness of God. But it's the same word. God hates sin. He despises it. It's objectionable to him. He wants to put it away. He wants to destroy it. That's a very appropriate response towards sin. But negatively, this is how the world responds to Jesus. And his followers hate us. They hate us greatly. Now let's look some more. Do you want to know what the world values? You want to know what the world loves? You want to know what the world's priorities are? There's no more, there's no greater picture than to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus says, hated me before I hated you. And when Jesus came into the world to save sinners, remember, for God so loved the world that he gave. His only begotten Son. Jesus is God come in the flesh. He is God with us. God present. He's come into the world to save sinners. For three years, Jesus has gone about doing good. Consider what we've seen. Healing of the lame. uh, Raising of the dead. Opening the eyes of the blind. uh, Doing good to all manner of people. We're told that sometimes in the evening he, he healed people on to the night. He went to many communities doing good. 
great good, commendable good. There was, you know, thousands were hungry and he multiplied a few loaves and fishes and he fed them. All these things that Jesus is doing are good. There's, there's no cause for hatred. There's no reason to despise him. There's no reason to detest him or want to put him away except that the hearts of men are sinful. And Jesus is the Son of God. He is righteousness come to the earth. So here we see what the world values. It's everything that is contrary to Jesus. They're against what Christ is for. They're ultimately against that which is good. And you see it in various parts of the world with uh, the destruction that is wreaked out by men. You think even of war. You know, see that happening in our day. You see hatred of one man for another, one nation for another. Ultimately, we see that the world persecuted God come in the flesh. It's one time in human history when God came and dwelt amongst men. The remarkable event of the incarnation. God come in the flesh, the Son of God, born of a woman, taking to himself our humanity. And the world's response was to destroy him. It's the one time that you could see God. Indeed, he is God on the earth. As John says in the opening of his, of his epistle, he said, we, that which we saw, that which we held, that which we touched. The world could touch him, see him. He was, the world was touched by him. And they despised him. They destroyed him. And so it was, Jesus would understand that if we will live faithfully, following him, fruitfully, visibly living for Jesus' sake, then you will not find the world smiling upon you. The world is not encouraged by these things. The world does not want anything to do with it. The world will hate you because Jesus says, it hated me before you. When Jesus completed his work of redemption, having offered himself up once for all, he has sat down at the Father's right hand, and it is there that he is ruling and reigning. But we, his people, are still on the earth. Think about that. Paul uses the image of we're the body of Christ. Christ is the head, we're his members. Goes on to talk about hand and eyes and uses that as an illustration. We are the body of Christ on the earth. Paul takes it so specifically in Ephesians 5 that he tells us that we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So when we think about when Christ walked upon the earth, he was physically present, the Son of God, what did they do to him? They hated him so much they crucified him. Christ in the church is still present on the earth. He, we are his body. We are ministering to the world. It should be no surprise if we're treated any differently than they treated the Son of God. We belong to him. We're a sheep. We are the living temple where he tabernacles. And we are still on the world where the world can get at us and it longs to destroy Christ, but it cannot get at him. And so they rage at us. Even as we live for his glory, we bear fruit. His light shines forth through us in various degrees. And it is that reminder, even as Abel's obedience was a reminder to Cain, that there's righteousness and there's good. And that God, by his grace, is able to save and change lives. But the world rejects that. And so we are persecuted for Christ's sake. Let's remember a few things in light of this truth. Nothing happens to us but what God has ordained. So we think of this context of suffering, being persecuted for Christ's sake. Nothing 
comes our way, but what God has ordained and what God knows is good. We are secure in our Father's hands and no one can snatch us out. Persecution is the fire that God uses to sanctify us. So here's the world is against us, wants to destroy us, but God working all things together for our good. He is using the opposition to purify us. And indeed, we have much dross within us to be consumed. And so the fires of persecution, the world in hatred, God overriding all, he's using it to conform us more and more to the image of his son, that we would reflect him more and more on the earth. And so we can, as James says, count it all joy, because God is maturing us and making us more like Jesus I preached through Philippians a number of years ago in my previous pastor, and at the end of the first chapter, Paul writes to the church of Philippi, they are being persecuted. And he says to them, brothers, consider what a blessing it is for you to be counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. That's what James and Peter, uh, and Peter said after they were persecuted, beaten, because they healed a lame man at the, the, at the edge of the temple. And they were preaching in Christ's name and they were persecuted and they went away from their beating rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, that we could rejoice that we would be counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So there you see that you know, the world means it for evil, God means it for good, even as Joseph told his brothers. God is at work in the persecution. We suffer for the sake of Christ. Some application. Some lessons from this that we dare not miss. The world has always been hostile to God and to His Christ. There's a part of me that would want to come to each of you young people and and say, look me in the eye. Listen to what I would have to say. But it's not just your young people. It's it's all of us older folks too. It's the the parents and the adults in the room that we should make sure that we get this. Uh, We are in no less danger than when we get older of losing sight of this. We must never think that we can cozy up with the world to make it go easier for us. We must never think that the world is safe. Do you hear me? You, you, young people, adults, we must never think that the world is safe. The world is never safe. The world is in opposition to God. It is in rebellion against God. We must never think that the world is not really all that different than Jesus. And we must never think that the ways of the world, its affections, its priorities, its goals, its agendas, are compatible with God's ways. And if I could proclaim it to the whole broad evangelical church today, we must never think that we should accommodate the world as we go about doing the king's business. It compromises the gospel. It waters it down. It dilutes our effectiveness. It it uh, shades and hides the truth. We are called to be bold and to stand for the truth. Come what may, fear not what man may do to us. They can only destroy our body. God alone has the power to destroy the body and soul in hell. We must never think it is a good thing to live with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. We can't do it. 
No man can serve two masters. James, a little later on, chapter 4 opens. It's, it's, it's a stunning chapter. He's, he's writing to the church. And he says to the church, adulterers, adulteresses. It's not the way you expect to be addressed by your pastor, is it? Although it may be appropriate. But then he goes on to say, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The world hates us because they hated Christ before us. We should expect it. And never try to accommodate or make ourselves comfortable to the world. This is the reality. We belong to Jesus. And the world will hate us. Why does the world hate us? Certainly it's been implied all through this point. But why does the world hate Jesus' true disciples? Well, the first reason is given in verse 19. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. So it is that we're not of the world. And so he goes on to say, Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, the world loves its own. You see, the, uh, was it Herod and Pilate at the time of Christ's trial? They were enemies before, but they're the same sort of men. And so when it comes to their mutual hatred for Christ, they, they collude together and they became friends that day. The Scripture tells us the world loves its own. If we were of the world, then our character would be like the world's. We would love the things that the world loves. We would talk like the world does. We would laugh at what the world laughs at. We would reject what the world rejects and embrace that which the world embraces. And this includes Jesus. The world rejects Him. And if we were in the world, we would reject Christ too. Is that not what our state was before God reached down and intervened? You see what Jesus is saying? It's not because of what they have done. That is, it's not because of what we have done. It's because of what Christ has done. You notice again the language. He says, you are of the, if you are of the world, the world will love its own. You, yet because, I'm sorry, yet because you are not of the world, and notice what he says, but I chose you out of the world. See, it's not what we've done. It's what God in Christ has done. The disciples, these 11 men in the upper room with Jesus at that point, this is very uniquely this is true. But it's no less true for us. But it was literally physically true. Jesus was walking along, going about his business, and he encountered these men you know, with their nets by the boats. He says, come, follow me. He finds Matthew in the tax booth. Come, follow me. And Jesus literally, as he says, I chose you out of the world. But my friends, it is no less true for you today. Though Jesus may not have walked by your house one day and said, come, follow me. By His Word and Spirit, through the preaching of the Word and the working of the Spirit, Jesus has called you out of the world. That's why you united Him. That's why you're in the church. That's why you belong to Him. You're no longer of the world because of what He has done. And therefore, the world hates you. What a marvelous thing it is that God calls sinners out of the world. My friends, let us never cease to marvel at the wonder of this, that God would stoop to save those who hate Him. Those who are in rebellion against Him. Those who are in opposition to Him. That God would go after them. That God would pursue them. That God would have mercy and save sinners. And so it is. It's God's electing grace and His effectual call. Jesus has said this back in John 6. He said, No one comes to Me except the Father draw Him. 
And then he goes on to say, no one comes to the Father except by me. It's all of God's electing and sovereign grace. And this is what men hate. Men hate electing grace. And so powerful is our hate that God is sovereign. Uh, so, uh, so full of hate against the sovereignty of God and God doing that which He will, that God would stoop and do what we cannot do for ourselves, that that, that attitude even lingers over in branches of the church today. They react uh, even vehemently against the idea of the doctrine of election. And yet Jesus is very clear. He says, I called you out. He goes back to the garden. What was the temptation? You can be God. Write your own path. Lay out your own history. Have your own way. You don't need God. And ultimately we need God because the Scriptures are clear, apart from God working, no one comes to the Father. No one seeks after God. No, not even one. And it is a humbling reality to recognize that if it were not for God, we would all remain dead in our trespasses and sin. And so it is that the world hates this message that we proclaim and indeed the picture that we are of this electing grace of God that here we are, sinners, saved by grace because of the electing grace of God in the effectual call of Christ through His preached Word. It undermines what they want to stand on. It overthrows their principles. Man wants to have such rights for himself. And yet the truth is, it is only by God's grace that we are called and saved. And so the world rages and plots in vain. The world also persecutes the church because Christians belong to Jesus. We are his servants and he is our master. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They're going to do it. It's this if um, in Philippians 2, um, Paul uses a succession of ifs. If there's any consolation crisis and comfort crisis, it's the sense of since. It's a kind of a roundabout way of saying no, since there is. And, and that's what the way it is. Since they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is why the world hates us, because we belong to Jesus. We're his servants. Jesus has taught this the 11 that are still with him in the upper room, that they are his and that this is the reality. Um, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. Matthew 10, 24, it's a very similar statement in uh, Luke chapter 6 and verse 40. These men went on to know fully what Jesus taught here. After Peter and John healed the layman, as we mentioned earlier, they found out that like their master, they would suffer at the hands of the world. But Jesus says, remember, Remember the word that I said to you. We need to be reminded, don't we? Again and again and again. You know, we go through the Ten Commandments. Week by week, we finish, we do it again. We finish, we do it again. Some of you have been doing it for years and years and years and years. Is there ever a time you say, no, I, I got it now. Every morning I get up and boy, those ten are right there in front of my face. I remember them. No, we need to be reminded Reminded, reminded. We need to be reminded of the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we come together for worship. And Jesus says, remember. These men are the apostles. They need to be reminded. They need to oft be reminded that Jesus has said to them, the servant's not greater than the master. Sometimes we get a little full of ourselves, a little too big for our britches. We think that uh, we'll, we'll get an exception. 
But indeed, Jesus would remind us not to expect a warm welcome from the world. The world hates Jesus. We are his servants. He suffered at their hands. We will too. J.C. Ryle, I'm not quoting him, but just uh, reflecting on something he says. He notes that this uh, is uh, one thing uh, true Christians often are forgetting. We are frequently surprised when an unconverted family member or a dear friend um, do not see things as we see them. We, we, we talk about things from a biblical perspective and, and they disagree, even strongly so, and we're surprised. Now, remember, we belong to our master. They don't like our master. They hate our master. They hate his message. They don't want to hear it from us. We can have a burden for their souls. Indeed, we should have a burden for their souls. But you know what? They don't care. Care less. They'd be indifferent to that. I can remember visiting a pretty crotchety old man in southwest Virginia. One of the men in our church known this man, and he was notorious in the community. And he was afflicted physically. He was in the nursing home where I would visit weekly. And I went to see this man. I told him who I was. He said he knew. I said, uh, can I read some scripture to you? No. Can I pray with you? No. So I left. Came the next week. Reminded who I was. I said, do you mind if I pray with you? If you have to. <laughs> but the Lord was working in that. And it went on to, week after week, God working in that one who once hated Christ and his servant. I prayed with that man, and before he died, as best I can know, God had worked in him. But left to himself, that would have not happened. He would have hated me because he hated Christ, and he hated Christ's message, and he wouldn't have heard it from anyone. And so it is. We have a burden for souls. That's a hard thing, isn't it? You know, we're being faithful to our master. I'm, I'm kind of doing a little side here with an application, but you know, we expect that the world to oppose us. I know many of you struggle with family members, this reality that they don't see things as you do. They don't love your Christ. But we persevere. We keep praying. We keep speaking. We keep trying. Because we're followers of Christ. We belong to him. And that burden is in us because right, his spirit is in us. Now, here's something I want to pack for you at the end of verse 20. And when I first read it, you know, it's like, what? If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Does that seem kind of out of keeping with the context? Well, just on the face of what it sounds like it's saying, you know, know, they're in opposition to Jesus. There's no keeping of his word. Actually, the way the language is here, what it means is keep here means to take hold of with malicious, malicious intent. That is to carp and complain about his word. And we've seen that from the religious leaders, right? They take things he says and they throw it back at him. That's what he says. And so you expect, he says, if they take hold of my word with malicious, malicious intent, then you should expect them to do the same thing with your words. They will keep your word. They'll throw it back at you. Some of you worked in the workplace where people know you're a believer. And the first time you stumble, like, ha! Right? They love it because we failed. We know that's the reality. It's the same idea that the world likes to find fault with us. The world likes to take something that's biblical and true, perhaps they've heard from us, and, and hold on to it to come back and clobber us with it, so to speak. 
Jesus says, expect it. They did the same thing with my word. They will do so with your word. Well, then Jesus sums up the reasons the world hates us in verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Why is the world in such opposition to Christ and to those who follow him? Because they don't know the Father. They hate the Father. Jesus makes it clear in John 17, verse 3, to know the Father is life. This is everlasting life. and So they don't have this everlasting life, which is to say they do not have a union with Christ. They're still in the rebellion. They're still dead in their trespasses. They're in opposition to God, and therefore you can expect nothing less than that from them, that they would behave that way. This is where the preaching of the gospel has a central role. Men must hear that they are lawbreakers and under judgment. As Dr. Reeder uh, reminds us, some of you listen to Fresh Bread podcast, and he regularly reminds us that uh, we need to tell people the bad news so they're ready to hear the good news. He even says, you know, the part of the good news is the bad news, that we need to hear the law. The first use of the law is to show us our sin, that we are rebels, that we're disobedient, that we're in opposition to God, we're under his wrath. That's part of the gospel. And if you don't begin there, then the rest of it doesn't shine forth so bright, we could say. It's against the backdrop of the reality of our sin and our depravity and our utter lostness and hopelessness apart from Christ that Christ looks so precious. And so it is. Men must hear that they are lawbreakers and under the justice of God. And then we tell them Jesus alone can deliver them out from under this place of wrath. For this reason, he came into the world to save sinners. God so loved the world that he gave him to deliver sinful men out from under the wrath of God. It is by faith that the sinner is united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the only redeemer of God's elect. Romans 10, 14 tells us, Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how will they have a preacher unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. As those who love Christ, who follow him, are united to him. We're going to be opposed in the world, but we keep pressing on, going forth with his message, with his method, which is the, the, the medium of delivering the word by preaching to the word. We keep pressing on to do so. We'll conclude with this. Our theme is to come to Jesus will mean coming out of the world. And the result is that the world will hate you. As Jeremiah Burroughs put it, the world would have us to be like them. We were not our own. We've been bought with a price. We don't even belong to ourselves. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has purchased with his precious blood shed at the cross. And Jesus bought us to conform us to his image, that we should be more and more like him, which means as he shines more through us, we will become more offensive to the world around us. The world is hostile to the church. It will oppose us. We're beginning to see this in our own nation, are we not? Something that, by and large, I'll be honest with you, when I started having children, I anticipated persecution was coming, and I sought to raise our children to be prepared to live in a time of persecution when the church will be persecuted. But as the years went by, I started to realize, no, that persecution's coming sooner. I expect to be persecuted, even myself. 
And I told my wife, I expect to be put in prison for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Things have changed. But brothers and sisters, it's not a cause for fearfulness. Jesus has told us these things. He has forewarned us that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. But to be encouraged that we have an opportunity to bear light for the glory of God and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's in him that is salvation and we are called to be those proclaimers of the truth of the gospel. Again, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, this is in the next chapter, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. What was the last of the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you are left out of the bar. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. There's a long history of the church being persecuted. Read your Old Testament. You will see it time and again. Read the story of Joseph. We preach through it. Persecuted for righteousness sake. Brothers and sisters, be not afraid. Christ has overcome the world. Amen. Oh Lord our God, we thank you that even hard things, you reveal them in your word. Lord, we thank you that you've not left us to, to be alarmed when persecution should come, but that you've told us in advance. And Father, teach us, like Peter and John, that if we are persecuted, that we can rejoice and we're counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of Christ. Lord, strengthen us in our beloved Redeemer that we would live for his glory. And Lord, even as we've heard these things, embolden us to go to those who we know that are perishing, that we would go again and again and again that you might prevail in them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.